Assalamu alaikum, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, we're honored to speak to Dr. Uwaymer Anjum. Assalamu alaikum, Akhi Uwaymer. How are you? Alaikum salam, rahmatullah. Honored to be with here. Thank you for being here. Dr. Uwaymer Anjum is the Imam Khattab Endowed Chair of Islamic Studies at the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the University of Toledo. He is the author of Politics, Law, and Community in Islamic Thought, The Taymiyyan Moment published by Cambridge University Press. He has translated Madarish al-Salikin by Ibn al-Qayyim, which is one of the greatest Islamic spiritual classics. His current projects include a survey of Islamic history and a monograph on Islamic political thought. Today, Dr. Oweimer is going to be speaking to us about the importance of divine revelation in order to have a good, solid ethical framework. In addition, he'll be discussing the nature and essence of Islamic ethics. Dr. Oweimer, whenever you're ready, the floor is all yours. Okay, thank you very much, first of all, uh, Brother Bassam. Uh, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah. Uh, today I'll be presenting from a couple of articles that I have published um, at the Akin Institute for Islamic Research. Um, one is called uh, why ethics needs Islam, um, and the other one is prophetic ethics. So we'll be focusing, inshallah, today on the content of mostly the first article, although uh, toward the end I'll make reference to the second one as well. Um, the purpose of this article is to address often questions that are asked by Muslims and non-Muslims, which is, do you need uh, religion to be a good person? Do you need Islam to be a good person? Do you need God to be a good person? These are, in fact, three different questions that we're going to talk about. Um, and um, often the refrain is that Religious ethics are parochial, meaning uh, religion is parochial. It's for certain people who believe in it. They're insiders and outsiders. And the idea of humanity, like to be good to all human beings, just because people are human beings, is much more capacious, much more uh, unlimited, unrestricted. So why do we not merely... Uh, you know, be good because we are human beings. And so today I will deconstruct um, and in, investigate some of these um, some of these uh, questions, uh, some of which are uh, incorrectly phrased. In other words, we, we they could be true. The questions are pointing to something real and true. Nevertheless, um, there are important considerations uh, that uh, need to be taken in, into account. So um, let's get started. <clears throat> let's set the stage first. Let's first begin by admitting that the ethical impulse, the love for what is good, is natural to all human beings. Um, we witness that human beings everywhere are good to <clears throat> their friends, to those that they love. 
And more generally, the more they get to know uh, anyone, they have a desire to be good and to do good. Um, Yet, as I will argue, uh, based both on revelation, that is the Islamic revelation um, given to the final prophet of God, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa um, as well as re- reason, using simply empirical arguments and drawing on uh, non-Muslim secular as well as uh, Christian and other thinkers, that we need guidance, we need revelation to guide and perfect that uh, ethical impulse. So let me start with the revelation and the hadith that for Muslims is one of the foundational hadith of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, on the question of ethics, and that is, that I have been sent only to perfect noble traits of character. There are a few different wordings of this hadith, but the hadith is universally recognized to be a sound hadith. And the meaning of this hadith, that I have been only sent to perfect noble traits of character, could be uh, understood in one of two different ways, and possibly both, but they are two different uh, ways of parsing the sentence. One is that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is saying, everything that I teach, everything that I do is nothing but the perfection of morals. Which means that you can... T- Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Take any aspect of Islam, any teaching of Islam, and it is a moral teaching. And... Uh, the other meaning is that this uh, exclusive, exclusive particle only actually applies only to um, the idea of perfection. That means the Prophet Muhammad is saying, salam, I have come only to perfect, not to invent or introduce good morals. All right. And you actually find that both of those teachings are um, affirmed in other parts of Islamic revelation. So for instance, um, the Prophet came first and foremost, as is very clear in the Quran, to establish Tawheed, or uh, oneness of God, in both in that God is only one true God, and that one must worship only one true God, monotheism and monolatry, as as they're called. Um, And that is declared in the Qur'an to be the single most important um, commandment, right? As well as, in fact, in the 
uh, the Bible as well. Uh, it's the first and the most important commandment. But also, uh, its opposite, shirk, is the only unforgivable unforgiv sin, and it's the greatest uh, wrong, zulm, in the shirk, al-zulman azim. It is a great wrong, the greatest of wrongs. So basically, it is a moral commandment as well. So if you go with the first understanding, then the wahid is the the, is the foundation of all morality. And that would be correct according to the Quran and the Sunnah, as well as it's philosophically, if you think about it, uh, where do ethics, where this idea of being good come from? Ultimately, we're going to resort to this understanding of this uh, verse as really the foundation of Islamic ethics. But we'll get to that toward the end of the presentation. The other meaning of the presentation is also, uh, this hadith is also, um, instructive and affirmed in other hadith, and that is, I have come only to perfect rather than introduce or invent good morals. And here we can draw on other teachings of the Prophet وسلم, as well as the Quran, where the good character of people, even before Islam or outside of Islam, is recognized. And then, um, so the Prophet, for example, in a in a in a in a well-known hadith that's narrated in Muslim, um, recorded in Muslim as well as elsewhere, where um a a nobleman, al-Ashaj from the tribe of Abdul Qais, comes to the Prophet, and the Prophet sees him and his manners, and he says, There are two things about you that God loves: your gentleness and your forbearance. And the man seems very wise, so he asks immediately a very interesting and important ethical question, which is, are these qualities of forbearance and gentleness ones that I have acquired, or are they given to me? And the Prophet declares in this case, salam, that in fact, these are qualities God has given you. God has made them part of your nature, and then the man thanks God. And then this man is is pagan just minutes just minutes before this encounter, or you know maybe a few days before this encounter, before he declares his faith. But as soon as the prophet sees him, he is uh, he recognizes his uh, pre-Islamic qualities as being truly good. And then there are other hadith, such as the hadith in al-Bukhari, that khiyaruhum fil jahiliyati khiyaruhum fil Islam, that the best people in the time before Islam, in the time of Jahiliyyah, are also the best in Islam, either faqihu, so long as they understand, so that so long as they acquire the understanding uh, of the divine guidance and therefore you know, measure their character and calibrate or recalibrate it accordingly, they are the best people, meaning that the Prophet declares them good in the time of Jahiliyyah, in the time before Islam. Um, which affirms this idea that good goodness is known to people before Islam, but the Prophet has, has come, and not only the Prophet Muhammad, but all prophets come to guide and to deepen, right? So when they direct this ethical good conduct, what are you, the teleology, if you will, the goal of this, this conduct, but also the depth of the those qualities once they are connected to god then they reach an entirely different and unprecedented level uh, because our ethical character is very much dependent on the goals that we are trying to seek and if 
the purpose is only to feel good, then you'll have a certain limit to, you know, how many people you're going to smile to and who you're going to feel close to. Whereas if you're doing it uh, for God, then the depth of your good character uh, will be entirely different. So basically both the direction, the purpose, as well as the depth of your moral character is uh, increased, is deepened when um, you encounter revelation, right, with, the, with, with this goodness. Um, so that said now, let us turn to the other part of uh, this equation, which is reason. Uh, we find the Qur'an, in fact, declares al-aql, uh, at least one way to translate that is intellect, um, that the Qur'an addresses those who would have failed on the Day of Judgment and say, had those people heeded revelation or reasoned correctly, they would have found the path to salvation. So what's interesting here is that it's the or particle here, which is that reason itself would have led them to revelation, just as revelation would lead them to uh, salvation uh, and would require them to reason correctly. Um, now we find that when you when you think about reason, uh, sorry, religion, uh, religion itself which is a modern term and a little bit tricky to define, but um, most world religions today, for instance, that, uh, that at least religions that have survived out of many other religious communities and, uh, and beliefs, um, they have valuable teachings, at least valuable teachings vis-a-vis -vis the communal life, and there is wisdom in uh, what many of these religious traditions have uh, kept over time or perfected over time. Yet religions also vary greatly. Uh, they differ greatly in their commitment to truth. Uh, some religions have no interest in propositional truth or rational truth, for instance. This idea of reason, uh, some religions are, for instance, do not in, in, are not invested in showing the logical, um, uh, you know, logical coherence, fairness and justice. Similarly, you may have religions where inequality um, and um, difference are central to the religious system itself. Charity, so charity within the community is almost found everywhere, but charity to outsiders may not be part of religion. So in other words, uh, religions could differ in their ethical commitment. But also another thing that makes us realize the importance of good reasoning is that even religions, regardless of their truth value, in the truest of cases, uh, religions struggle with extremism. This is something that we find the Prophet Muhammad warned people in his own community. Um, and then also there are uh, afflictions. You know, your body could be perfectly healthy, but you will have diseases um, and your diseases could be pertaining to the, the disease or afflictions of the will, meaning whether you do the right thing after receiving guidance, right? That always remains a problem. 
whether you are overwhelmed by desire um, or weak will um, or uh, afflictions of the mind. You may have uh, either doubts or uh, you may have other reasons why uh, you twist the teachings um, of, 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 of revelation. And therefore, it's important to have good reason um, to avoid these afflictions in any religious community. Otherwise, religious communities themselves may turn and, and non-ethical, anti-ethical, unethical. And, and therefore, um, reason, when rightly guided, helps against these afflictions. Um, and I want to here recall uh, Moroccan philosopher Taha Abdul Rahman, um, uh, who has wonderful work on Islamic ethics, uh, he defines three levels or three, uh, if you will, planes of reasoning. Uh, which is bare reason. And he says that Western reason in all of its modern secular glory is at best bare reason. Um, and then there is guided reason, which is when it encounters revelation, um, but then there is when this guidance becomes great internalized so that, so that as if you have a connection to God, so that uh, God is guiding you or to use the prophetic uh, hadith uh, when, when uh, Allah says in a hadith Qudsi, I become the eyes with which my servant sees or and and the ears with which he hears and so on. So there is a great, um, um, uh, if you will, nearness to God, erasure of all that is bad uh, and resistive in human personality. That is what he calls al-aql al-mu'ayyad, supported reason. So these are all kind, different kinds of reasoning. And I think it's really important for Muslims to understand that just because you have encountered revelation, it's not that you have set reason aside, right? So you don't, and this is a great trick of secularity to claim reason for itself and leave revelation and text and um, and, and, and mere imitation uh, for religion and the religious people. But rather, I think the true, uh, what Taha Abdul Rahman is arguing here, and I think it's also a great, a better reflection of the Quranic uh, discourse is that you, your reason is elevated. It goes from bare reason to a better forms of reasoning. All right, so now let us, because we're going to start with reasoning, let us uh, think about how reason functions, reason functions with facts. What are the facts about um, ethics? What are the challenges about um, when it comes to the question of ethics today? Um, human beings disagree deeply about what is good. Like That's the human condition today. Disagreement and confusion about the goal and nature of good character are too abundant to allow pinning down of any general principles. Okay. Now, you might say, what about murder? You could say murder is wrong, right? But you might then, somebody might turn around and say, well, one person's murder could be the other person's uh, just war. Um, <clears throat> and um, you find that 
you know, anything that you define as um, as really bad, so killing, torturing babies, for instance, most people will consider that horrible. But as soon as human beings begin to argue about why this is bad, um, they often disagree and... Um, which is not to say that you know we cannot or we cannot all agree that genocide is bad, that killing of innocent people is bad, but that um, we all tend to find um, you know we all tend to find exceptions in order to justify some other good that we have come up with. So you might talk about, for instance, the collateral damage because you have some other great good in mind. You may end up killing some uh, babies and you may say, well, innocent babies died. You know, we bombed Iraq, um, you know, got rid of one great evil, uh, you know, uh, Madeleine Albright, uh, Secretary of State in the United States, 1997, I believe in this interview, she said half a million Iraqi children killed was worth the policy, and nobody really even knew what the policy was for. Nevertheless, this was seen by the civilized democratic people in the world as quite justifiable. Um, and, and then the following year, she was elected to the US Senate uh, with no vote against her. So basically this was seen by, unless we all consider Americans to be entirely the most unethical people to live on the face of the earth, we will have to agree that, well, people somehow were able to overcome and forgive this kind of uh, uh, the statement that uh, half a million Muslim Iraqi children were, uh, well, uh, par for the course. Um, also, people, um, best of moral philosophers, have endorsed horrible things. And one of my favorite philosophers, somebody I have great respect for uh, Plato, um, who I argue often to my students was very close to Fitra in many respects. He, uh, in famous book, The Republic, which is really the most important book in, in Western political philosophy, um, recommends taking children from parents when they're born and basically, you know, uh, uh, loving them according to their faculties, if they are worth uh, worthy or not, because the great all injustices in his view are introduced because of parents' uh, unqualified love. Love is not deserved often, um, and and so this idea of taking children away and not giving human beings love, uh, which often is we recognize today is necessary for them to become fully loving and ethical human beings. Um, if we follow Plato, we would do some, perhaps the most horrific things uh, that we can imagine. Um, my point is simply that the best of moral minds, um, when they're not aided by some standard, um, they can fall into great error. Yeah, you don't you don't even have to go that far back. I mean, if we're if we just think about some prominent uh, you know contemporary philosophers, I mean, Michael Tooley uh, did uh, he did pass away uh, maybe like eight years ago, but Michael Tooley and Peter Singer, who's alive today, um, you know they, they 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 do not see anything inherently evil about infanticide if done within the first 
few immediate days uh, post-birth, because for them, the value of human life commences once the human being, uh, you know, becomes, attains personhood, and attains a state of consciousness, and whatnot. I mean, you could, one could read about Peter Singer's uh, reasoning in that regard. And there were actually a couple of uh, two, I think, Italian philosophers. They uh, also wrote an article. They published it in a peer-reviewed journal um, advocating for this position as well. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they were actually f physically threatened for publishing that article. But, you know, the academy came to their defense and said, you know, we have to respect freedom of thought and, and whatnot. Uh, right. So we don't even have to go as that far back. We're, we have academics today and prominent philosophers who are publishing in, in peer-reviewed journals and have respected positions in in the academy also advocating some of these horrific things. Now, I, I wouldn't say that they're endorsing infanticide, but they're certainly not taking a hardline stance against it like any other normal human being would. Right. So just to bolster, you know, further cement the point that you're making here. Right. No, excellent. Excellent point. Um, and to move to a different perspective, right? These are, uh, this is one way where we often turn to for authority, which is the great minds. And we have shown that great minds can make great errors. In fact, I was just recently reading an article that says that, um, Mo, uh, the people who are not that smart, they tend to be fooled and get into uh, erroneous positions uh, by the authority, right, of people who are seen as or who are often uh, above average intelligent, of above average intelligence, extremely smart. Um, so people who are very smart usually embrace um, more severely uh, twisted positions or wrong positions, um, whereas people of less, you know, more average intelligence uh, would often see these things as wrong and perhaps, uh, uh, you know, in common sense, but they are they are often misled by other people. So my point is that you have the example of the mass uh, uh, hysteria, if you will, the mass ethical failure uh, in the form of Nazi history, which is almost always the example that we use, and rightly so. Um, it's an example um, that shows that a modern um, nation state, with um, which was at the time Germany, Weimar Germany, was in fact the most advanced nation state, um, best, almost the best in its science, um, and technologically most advanced, uh, a society full of uh, uh, artists and philosophy. Uh, Germany until recently was seen as far above the rest, you know, competitors, uh, British and French and, and Americans in terms of its philosophical achievement. Um, that society turned Nazi, right? Uh, as a result of, uh, you know, first the defeat in the First World War, but then really certain ideas. And what's interesting is that um, Nazism was driven by a certain kind of ethics. And there is a recent uh, uh, book by historian Richard Weikert, I believe, who is at California State University, 
um, who has published a book called uh, Hitler's Ethics, uh, how evolutionary um, uh, science led to uh, Nazism. And where he argues that many of these people felt a certain, uh, there, there is certain ethical ideal of improving the human race and eliminating um, the unwanted people was therefore uh, necessary to improve the human race. And if you give a certain understanding of what is good for, uh, you know, survival of the human beings and what is going wrong with the world, you know, these are the bad people that need to be eliminated. They are the problem. Um, then it's a it's a, it's an ethical impulse to 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 try to eliminate them. So basically, the idea that all human beings have some inherent value, that human beings have a soul and that soul is sacred, is something that's beyond calculation. That idea is not at all empirically attested, and it's not something that uh, modern philosophers can find any basis for. Um, it comes from only one source, and that is the Abrahamic tradition. It's, it's The Quran mentions this idea that if you've killed one person as if you've killed entire humanity, and the Quran, Allah says in the Quran that this was revealed to the people before you, the people, Kitab, the Jews and Christians. And this idea um, is central to the development of human rights and to the development of, um, of, of, of all modern secular ethics, right? Um, but this idea itself has no foundation outside of these religious traditions, which means that human rights is simply a, an arbitrary claim. You know, it's not empirically uh, the very idea of what is a human being is contested, and especially now in the age of transhumanism, uh, the very boundaries of between what is human and what is non-human are being blurred. So, um, and in the, in the pre-modern period, this was in fact uh, often a contested question. Um, people, you know, for those of you who are uh, Lord of the Rings token fans, you know, he creates this medieval, this world, where you have different races, they have humans and dwarves and you know uh, elves and whatnot. That's because Tolkien was a really good reader of of historical literature, and he knew that that's how human beings constructed their world. They they, they didn't think that everybody who could talk and who was looked like humans was a human being. There were different races, and these races were literally different. Um, so there wasn't even the idea of what human being. Uh, except in this tradition uh, of people who said God is coming, God created one man and one woman, and from that came the entire race of all these different colors and all different types of people. They all go back to uh, Adam and Eve. Um, take that assumption away and you have nothing left. There is no human rights because there is no human being. So there's also often something with people who say that, well, we should just be uh, nice to each other regardless of religion, right? Why bring religion into it? That's because you can't even define human being without a religious assumption. Um, so when um, the American 
founding documents say uh, we take it to be a self-evident truth that all men are created equal, it's actually not at all self-evident yeah. unless you are drawing on the Abrahamic tradition. Yeah, they're taking, all right. all, they're taking all these things for granted, not realizing that they've inherent inherited, you know, the, you know the, these values and this knowledge, and they and they think they can just uh, pretend like, you know, they they, they can't, you know, the, the, but they don't owe knowing all this to right. to, to the tradition that they've inherited it from. Is, uh, right, right, exactly. And this idea, this pretension, we're going to turn to again as really a central problem in modern secular ethics. But let's continue with our um, what we observe factually in the world uh, when it comes to questions about little ethics. Uh, the secular age is not doing so well. And of course, secular age is the phrase I draw from, um, I take from Charles Taylor, a Catholic liberal philosopher, a uh, very important Canadian politician as well, who um, in his book, A Secular Age, um, describes how the humanity has uh, changed um, and how the world today is defined as a secular age. Uh, I would say that it's really mostly the global north, uh, Europe and, and, and North America, um, but because of the, he the, he the hegemony of these uh, of this region over the rest of the world in the last two to three centuries, that whatever happens in these societies is considered then and projected to sometimes forcibly brought to the rest of the world. And therefore, whatever happens here, whether it's a good reflection of reality or not, uh, we all have to uh, take it uh, seriously. Um, so, this secular age is not doing well, uh, notwithstanding scientific and technological progress, which is uh, significant um, and, and certainly worthy of admiration and, um, and, and even emulation. But, um, and, and modern institutions are in many ways unsurpassed um, in the embodies of knowledge they have produced and 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 the uh, in the ways in which they have improved lives of at least some people, we also see great and increasing economic inequality in the world. And this isn't a merely a branch problem, but rather, given the current system, it is not only getting worse, but is projected to get only worse. The current institutions are designed to make the rich richer, poor poorer. Um, similarly, political dead ends. So we have political uh, dead ends, not merely that we are having, you know, you know, bad politicians are coming to power, but that the very uh, uh, mechanisms where very institutions that modernity is based on uh, is immune to those institutions are immune to reform and correction and, and ethical uh, redirection. Um, and then there is widespread psychological nihilism where people feel loss of meaning uh, and you know skyrocketing suicides and depression are, are, are just some of the symptoms of deeper malaise uh, of humanity. 
Um, and then there are social failures. The human beings are the, the, the institutions that human beings could take for granted, at least in civilized societies for thousands of years, um, the institution of family and community um, and ethics of, uh, you know, value for the ethics of altruism. Uh, greed is bad. Sharing is good. Um, you know, you institutions that are extractive, like usurious institutions, usury interest, riba is bad. Those are all uh, assumptions, ethical assumptions that were taken for granted for literally thousands of years. Um, um, anthropologist and economist David Graeber, who, who passed away a, a couple of years ago, wrote a book called Debt, a 5,000 years of history of this idea of debt, where he uh, shows how usury or interest were seen in all human cultures, um, including Judaism, Christianity, but also all other cultures as some of the great fundamental evils uh, that has now, in the age of capitalism, uh, those evils have become virtues. So, and, and as a result uh, of that and other ethical failures, we are seeing that human relations, basic human relations and basic human institutions, social institutions are breaking down. Um, another way to look at... Um, this question of ethics and, and religion is asked different parts of the world. And there, uh, the answer that we hear is also very instructive, which is a survey show that the answer is divided between haves and have-nots. Um, and I provide a link to that in my Yakin article to, the, to that survey, that if you ask peoples in the global north, they would say religion is not necessary to, for us to be good, whereas the rest of the world, the have-nots, uh, believe that it is necessary uh, to, to be good. So in other words, religion remains popular as the source of the good outside of global north, outside of these populations uh, that have benefited from modern uh, secular accumulation of power and resources. Um, yet another perspective, does science have an opinion? Now, of course, science is uh, uh, Sorry, sorry about that, I, I think when it comes to, I mean, uh, usually when I watch a lot of debates regarding, you know, between theists and atheists, especially when, when it touches upon the argument for morality and what it means to be good, do you have to be religious to be a good person? And I, and I feel that when this question is asked, many people have different things in mind. Um, you know, so when you ask someone, do you need religion to be good? He may be thinking that, oh, okay, do I really need to practice? Do I really need to formally ascribe to a religion in order for me to not cheat? in order for me to not murder, in order for me to not steal. And if they're thinking that way, a lot of people will would answer, no, it's not important for me. And I would tend to agree. I would not necessarily say that if you do not subscribe to a religion, that you're going to go ahead and start killing people and start you know, cheating on your spouse or doing all these horrific things. But if the question is framed maybe a bit more clearly, 
in, in the sense that, you know, do you need a sort of, uh, you, you know, religious basis or godly basis uh, in order to justify your moral values that you hold dearly? Then I think the question becomes a bit more clearer, and I think that will force people to, you know, contemplate it a bit more carefully. Because sometimes these, the way these questions are being asked, I, I see it all the time in these debates. And usually, theistic philosophers always have to clarify that when they say that God is necessary for objective moral values, that they're not trying to say that if you're an atheist, you're just going to go ahead and start killing people and and, and being in you know, an extremely evil person doing all these horrific things. That's not what the argument is. That's not what we're trying to say. So uh, sometimes when we look right. at these, when we look at these surveys, and we, it would be important to look at the questionnaire, consider how the question is being asked, and take into consideration that it could possibly be interpreted in different ways among people. You know, it's just uh, something. Yeah, that that that's a great, uh, great intervention. Um, uh, you know, um, I provide the link, um, and and I encourage people to take a look at it. But I think that what what people are talking about here, um, in very commonsensical sense, uh, is a you know why are you good um, if you don't believe in God? Historically, people who did not believe in God were also people who did not believe in good or evil. Mm. In fact, what's interesting is that. One of the revolutions that takes place, intellectual revolutions that takes place in the middle of the 19th century with the rise of atheism, and then that's specially picked up um, by uh, uh, certain philosophers in, in Europe, in Britain in particular, who actually take this atheistic movement, which is greatly uh, reinforced by uh, and mainstreamed by Darwinism, the rise of Darwinism in the middle of the 19th century, some people, to make it more uh, palatable to the larger European population, which is still very religious, they renamed this atheism to as secularism. Actually, that's where the word secularism comes from in mid-19th century by, uh, by a chap named Holyoke, or Holyoke who uh, says, well, you know, uh, secularism is the term that he is going to, uh, to, to, he prefers basically a softer version of atheism. But one of the transformations that is taking place is that they are arguing that you can be good without believing in God. In other words, this was a revolutionary idea because people everywhere believed and ordinary people continue to believe in many ways that in order to be good, you need God. In fact, John Locke, you know, in his famous um, letter concerning toleration, excludes um, um, excludes atheists from his polity because he does not rationally doesn't think that it's possible for atheists to believe in uh, good and become good citizens. So this is a very um, this is a general and widely held belief among human beings that you need a foundation um, to be good. Um, and what happens, and you're right to point to this question of justification, but you see justification is particularly important because human beings have to make sense of their actions sooner or later. A lot of us act in ways that are 
usually just driven by inertia. That is, other people are doing it, so we'll do it, we'll do it. But especially in moments of crisis and transition that take place every now and then, um, if the foundation is lost, then sooner or later, in a generation or two, you're going to find that the behavior is also going to be lost. So um, that's where uh, the idea of secular um, poverty of you know ethical poverty, which uh, comes from and and some philosophers call it smuggling that uh, secular ethics effectively smuggle religious values without attribution, without accreditation, right? Without uh, and, and what ends up happening is that these values then become uh, inexplicable, and they can be either dismissed or understood as religious fundamentals or secular fundamentals like human rights in themselves. But if somebody asks, what is the foundation, scientific or rational foundation for those, you don't have an answer. It's just there. Uh, and that ends up happening, uh, that ends up leading to a desiccation and impoverishment of ethical understanding. And ethics then just become ethics of the powerful against the weak. And then uh, it's impossible uh, in times of crisis and transformation and conflict to uphold ethics. And, and we, we're going to get to that critique that a uh, number of philosophers have already made. Um, so let me get to uh, another perspective before I, uh, I, I, and I ask that question in a more systematic way. Does science have an opinion? And, and the short answer is that the best science can say is show data of the effect of uh, modern forms of life. And today's ecological crisis is an irrefutable argument, in my view, irrefutable judgment against modern hegemonic ethics uh, of capitalism, secularism, and liberalism um, that uh, lead to modern forms of lifestyle since at least the middle of the 19th century that is for uh, a little over a century and a half. Um, so this is a simple so be, empirical so, document. Sorry, go ahead. So, so just to be clear, when you say, that when, you're, when you're asking the question, does science have an opinion? You mean, does it have an opinion about ethics, right? Yes. And does uh, science have an opinion on whether modern secular ethics are doing well? I mean, I would answer. I would answer no to that question simply because science is amoral. It's amoral. I don't think it has, right. can, you know, contribute to to this discipline. It's like using a thermometer to measure distance. It's just the wrong right. tool. It's just the wrong tool. Right. So, so you you were right, strictly speaking. But most scientists today, in fact. Um, you know, according to the surveys, 97% of the scientists uh, will will say that global warming is real and are also uh, will show extreme concern that the practices that human beings are engaging in are leading to these destruction, this destruction. And when does this start? They will all say, well, it goes to the Industrial Revolution, um, you know, and really um, the acceleration of capitalism starting in 1870s. That's when all the markers, the hockey stick, if you will, of carbon uh, emissions, as well as species ex extinction 
deforestation, all of these things that we see as a fundamental transformation of uh, the living habitat um, takes place in this period as a result of these activities. And therefore, uh, most scientists, in fact, and people who believe in this, this science, which is the vast majority of at least science people, um, have an opinion, right? So it's not literally whether science gives you an answer to this, because you know, if, effectively, if you decide to uh, eliminate all life on human beings, science has an opinion on that. But do people who do science and at least are invested in the in survival of human species, uh, do they have an opinion? And the answer then is yes. Um, between 1890 and 1990s, uh, world's energy consumption has risen 16 times. By the way, 1890s is already 20 years after the great cap capitalist revolution had started. So the world wasn't as impoverished that, than, it, than it had been a century before that. Nevertheless, world's energy consumption has been going up 16 times, carbon dioxide emissions uh, 17 times. And that number has, because it's exponentially going up, so it's much greater now. Fishing, 35 times, water use nine times. And the numbers again are all higher today. But in this period, the world population rose only four times. So this is, and world popula population increase actually is tapering. But the uh, what's interesting is that you, if the reason for these numbers were merely increase in population, you would not explain the factor of 16 plus, 17 plus, 35 plus. Yeah. Um, so what's happening is the first yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah sorry. Uh, uh, I spoke to so I, I was going to say per capita consumption is clearly going on. Right. Yeah. So per capita consumption is much higher. But not only that, if you take into account the great e in e economic inequality, then in fact, for some people, water consumption is up 100 times. And for other people, it's perhaps even down compared to what you had before. Yeah. So what you're, this idea that the reason for the economic, ecological apocalypse, I mean, literally for the secular people, it's as close to apocalypse as you can get today is the life is ending as we know it. It's caused by people inhabiting the global north by a small percentage of population, maybe 15, 20%. Um, and 5%, Americans form 5% of world's population and, and consume 35% of world's energy and many other resources, the famous number that um, ecological or, or environmental activists uh, normally mention. But Basically, if you if people around the world started to live like people in the global north, then you would only 20% of the of people will be able to live on this earth. 80% of the people will have to either be killed or will need four other planets. Which which means that the the lifestyle is unsustainable, right? That's what science can tell us. Now, is that ethical? You can ask people, whether it's ethical, you know, usually, uh, I, you know, a, a, a scientist, uh, a teacher that I know, uh, who is invested in this, um, you know, uh, uh, go, you know, brings to his class, you know, he has a donut day, 
But then he says, we're going to divide these donuts based on how the world divides its um, its uh, goods, right? The, it's, its income. And uh, you literally have, so one person represent, you know, every nation state. And basically you have four or five kids have 26 bagels or 26 donuts. And then um, literally there are like more than half the class don't even have like a 10th of a donut. And they begin to then realize uh, what this, with the inequality that the world lives with. Um, so this means that it is not world population that is causing the ecological crisis. It is modern secular lifestyle. Exactly. And and of all, course, all these population you know, control advocates really need to grapple with these problems first before trying to ask people to give up some of their most yeah. intimate rights or productive rights to yeah. breed more children. <laughs> yes. So that's uh, that's often a, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very politicized issue. The Catholic Church doesn't want to touch these things. And basically, environmental activists often are passionate about this because often they tend to be anti-religious, but there are uh, there are people who are more sensible who realize this problem as well. But anyway, the point is that this is where the with modern secular modernity and that everybody wants to emulate. And not only that, but really um, people make wars based on how many people are emulating our lifestyle or not. You basically are using uh, uh, bombs to impose a lifestyle that is impossible for people to to emulate and uh unless there is you know war and other things and of course there are other uh, ecological ethics lead to um some deep deep dilemmas for instance um the, in, as a result of rising sea level because of global warming it is projected in the next less than five decades from now, um, nearly a billion people will find their homes underwater. And most of those are in fact in poor countries. In fact, most of those are in Muslim countries. So whether it's Egypt or Karachi or Cairo or uh, Indonesia, or Bangladesh, the number of people who, number of these uh, uh, cities that are going down um, is is staggering and and there is a projected estimate of 800 million people or a billion people that will be underwater because of the activities of people who are living um relatively far away from these consequences and they are singularly responsible for all the benefits and all the power that modern uh modern uh, industry has produced people in the global north um so there's most people agree that the modern world was configured under the mutually reinforcing forces of colonialism and capitalism and continues to operate under deep and in some respects deepening oppression and imperialism um there is a great need to return to good yet after forgetting god it seems farther and farther from humanity's reach. Last 
uh, or, or a little over a century ago, Nietzsche died in the year 1900, I believe, um, is an atheist philosopher who declared, God is dead. But what he meant by this rhetorical device was to say, what is, how are we going to understand the world if you take out the idea of God? So here is what he said. How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained this earth from its sun? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as though in infinite nothing? God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. This sentiment, um, and Nietzsche in many ways is the most important philosopher of the 20th century because he expresses this uh, this sentiment so clearly and and um, he saw as somebody who comes from a religious background gives up God and is able to see what's going to happen when you try to reconstruct ethics, morality, goodness, social relations without the premise of God, right? It is as if up is now down, as if, you know, the sea no longer exists, as if how, um, you know, the horizon no longer exists. Basically, the world cannot be the same. So he had a, uh, you know, way to express this. But I think in my ways, he, in, in many ways, he expressed the mood uh, and the, and and the, the the threat that the new intellectual formations of secularism presented to the world and to the idea of ethics. Uh, but now I will turn to make some distinctions that I have pointed out earlier, uh, which is that we aren't talking about just uh, religion because not all religions are are the same with respect to ethics. In fact. Uh, secularism and its various sects often function as a religion, and some many scholars argue that secularism is a religion. And you could think of, you know, liberalism or progressivism, and you know, Marxism as various sects of secularism. Um, people often have great devotion. There are certain, you know, main texts that people uh, people have, and. Uh, and secularism in many ways is deeply connected to polytheism. Uh, this was something that was observed by Max Weber, one of the most important observers of modern society, um, the, the German sociologist and father of sociology to many. Uh, Max Weber observed that um, basically after this uh, death of God and the, this rise of secularism and what he called disenchantment, um, we are going back to a world of polytheism. Um, and a Catholic philosopher, uh, McIntyre, uh, again, one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century, who went through many phases, first was a, a Marxist and then uh, embraced Aristotelianism and, uh, and then Thomist Aristotelianism, um, he argues that the real philosophical distinction is between monotheists and other religious traditions. So it's not really between religion and no religion, but between monotheists um, and between 
um, polytheist and an atheist because they they really uh, come down to similar forms of life. So so this distinction that you know it's religion versus no religion itself is not a very coherent and stable idea in my view. Uh, even within monotheisms, of course, there's the question of truth and preservation of God's message and morality um, that are pertinent. And as the Quranic discourse itself establishes something that uh, we will not address directly or at length in this presentation, um, and we might have to come back to it another time. Uh, but nevertheless, so when we ask the question, do, do ethics or does ethics need religion, this question is imprecise. That's not the question we're asking. The question we're asking is that, first, can there be ethics without God, right? Because religion has to do with how you relate to God. But if you deny the existence of God, that is what Nietzsche is talking about. Right. That it's impossible for there to be good and evil if there is no God. And then... Um, and then another question, which is, can there be ethics without direct access to revelation? And this question is something that even Muslim theologians, Muslim scholars disagreed about. So you have Kalam debates of, of Ash'aris on the one hand who answer the question is no, you cannot have ethics without direct access to revelation. Whereas uh, Maturidis, or at least the Samarqandi Maturidis and traditionalists and Mu'tazila who argue who, who answer that question as mostly yes, that you can have some fundamental ethics without direct access to revelation because God has given us reason. But they assume uh, the idea of God. They may even assume that uh, God has already made revelation available, and so it's part of human nature or DNA, if you will. And, and so that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an intra-Muslim debate that already exists. But the debate is not about the first question that Nietzsche is talking about, right? Because no Muslim thinkers uh, have even thought that possible. Um, and as I said earlier, secularism itself, which is the dominant religion today, dominant paradigm today, it functions in many respects as religion. Uh, but defining religion is tricky, and I will not go into that. I will simply say, let's assume that secularism is a religion, in which case, you know, people who object to religious ethics are effectively, you know, uh, asking a meaningless question. It's just basically switching from one religion to another. But if secularism is not a religion, which is the more commonsensical understanding then it has been, um, over the last uh, century and a half, the most unethical and horrific in its consequences. Uh, secular ideologies of Stalinism, Maoism, um, as well as Darwinism uh, the, have really uh, led to, sometimes very directly, to the First World War, for example. If you look at the discourse of the First World War, uh, they wanted a kind of a war that will... Uh, ensure the survival of the fittest. So that's the only way between the between England and Germany, you will know who is fitter. They're really using Darwinist logic. Uh, and, and the amount of death and mayhem that's created uh, in, the, in the 20th century is simply unprecedented. In fact, just the number of people killed in the First World War is greater than if you look at all the wars in human history that are recorded you add up all the numbers on all sides, 
the number of all the wars in human history is less than the number of people killed in those four years in the First World War. And then um, this was just the beginning because Second World War and what led to it are much, much greater. So in terms of mayhem, all of these ideologies are secular, whether they're Stalinism or Nazism or nationalist progress, fascism, and so on. So um, either way you cut it, secularism doesn't look good. And... um, I mean, on the question of secularism and whether it functions like a religion, I actually want to read out this uh, very interesting quote from Dostoevsky. Um, He said in his book, The Adolescent, uh, to live without God is nothing but torment. And it turns out that what gives light is the very thing we curse, and we don't know it ourselves. It's impossible for a man to exist without bowing down. Such a man couldn't bear himself. And no man could. If he rejects God, he'll bow down to an idol, a wooden one, or a golden one, or a mental one. They're all idolaters, not godless. That's how they ought to be called. And you know, what, I, what I like about this quote is that he's basically trying to say, and, and you got me thinking, trying to compare secularism to religions, that all right, you might explicitly deny that there is this transcendent being uh, separate from the universe called God, but at the same time, as you're trying to build your ethical framework, you're still ultimately submitting to something else. And you're ultimately, and from the Islamic framework, you know, we, st- we, we have this idea of, you know, people taking their own desires as gods. And when we're looking at, you know, as you're asking this question, can secularism be treated as some sort of religion? Uh, for me, uh, I, I believe that it, it, it is because it, it's substituting, it's trying to find a replacement for, for God, and it's submitting ultimately in a religious sense to some other ideal. And uh, and they abide by those ideals and those principles almost as religiously, quote unquote, as we would abide by uh, our own principles. Right. Uh, right. You know, but again, I, I do agree that you know defining the word religion itself may may be a bit tricky, and we would have to come to agree on that. But uh, you know, it, it, you know, secularists who abide by their own human rights and their secular ethics, you know, uh, they're 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 really ultimately not not that different when it comes to passionately uh, submitting to principles and ideals. Right. Right. And this problem of secularism as not being neutral, as being effectively as, uh, you know, bearer of certain um, prejudices and um, effectively uh, it's sort of a a theology that's anthropocentric, um, but also Eurocentric theology. It's a widely recognized issue. You find many historians uh, political theorist uh, William Connolly, I believe, uh, who is an uh, avowed atheist, uh, has a book called Why I Am Not a Secularist, uh, because he feels that the political political secularism is not a neutral or even a good uh, a good way uh, to organize uh, political life. And um, but 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 more interesting to me as you were talking, I mean that that quote was just right on. It is absolutely the case that secularism is connected to um, polytheism, right? It's um, idolatry because it's very much part of human nature 
we haven't found, you know, speaking uh, of anthropologists, they haven't found any human community that doesn't have a form of sacred form of worship. Um, and what's also interesting is um, historical scholarship increasingly shows that people who were champions of secularism actually were very deeply interested in the occult and in, in paganism. So there is a book by Joseph Jason Storm, or um, I may be mixing up the name, uh, called The Myth of Disenchantment, which shows that um, late 19th century Enlightenment figures including Max Weber, were in fact part of these uh, occult and very interested in it, very invested in it. But more importantly, as we are witnessing the rise in nuns, right, religious nuns, that is people who mark their religion as N-O-N-E, that we don't have any religion, uh, in the West, in America, particularly in the United States, that rise is uh, in the last couple of decades really unprecedented in American history. Um, but along with that, instead of people becoming more rational and more scientific, in fact, people are going back to the occult and black magic. There is a rise in that, and there are. Um, I will share that link with you to to the surveys that you could perhaps uh, link. And the point is that monotheism is the alternative to superstition. It's the way out of uh, uh, of of the occult, the black magic, paganism, uh, and atheism. They, as McIntyre, I think, correctly noticed that that's the real dichotomy. Um, and um, so to conclude, to ground what is truly good, we do not just need any idea of religion because secularism could be billed as religion, or you could have religions that are so communalistic and self-absorbed that they have no sense of ethicality, ethical duty to all human beings. We need something more. We need revelation and right reason, both of which come from God, right? So not just reason because reason is instrumental, but right reason, and right reason is a notion that uh, monotheistic religions have used, um, um, you know, widely. And so um, let me then get to the second part of uh, my presentation, uh, which is some critiques of secular ethics. These are not all the critiques, these are just some um, that I, in fact, I have mentioned earlier, I'm just going to um, sort of articulate them together here. Uh, people often say, you know, to, to, to reiterate the question we have addressed earlier, do we not have secular ethical systems? Why do we need religion? Um, and here, as I said earlier, we must differentiate between instrumental ethics versus what I call true ethics. So instrumental ethics are basically, you know, the behaviors that human beings like being kind, being nice, being smiling, uh, being on time. Uh, doing your part of the job. These are all things that we recognize as part of ethical behavior. Uh, being truthful to the extent that it is necessary for group dynamic. These are all ethical behaviors that people uh, recognize generally. And you could have a band of thieves that will not uh, function well unless there is some ethics uh, um, among them, right? If they do have good ethics, they will be better um, at um, stealing and, uh, and 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 enjoying their uh, their um, uh, loot. 
Similarly, greedy corporate executives, they are usually, um, you know, there because uh, they have mastered certain ethics of presentation. Possibly they're hardworking, uh, although in late modern capitalism, perhaps just because they happen to be in the right place, in the right families, the right time, regardless, they have absorbed, ser- absorbed certain ethics and um, those ethics work for them. Um, Hitler's armies were seen as the most uh, disciplined armies. They had, uh, and, and Hitler's uh, uh, the entire, uh, you know, the entire movement was driven by a certain idea of purity, certain idea of evolutionary uh, pride uh, that, again, could all be seen as forms of ethics. Uh, or instrumental ethics. So they they were perfect in instrumental ethics. And then you have, on the other hand, relief organizations that are trying to do really uh, uh, admirable things, b- but they could they could have bad ethics. And if they have bad ethics, then they will uh, deserve uh, you know uh, they will deserve blame um, that they squandered our money and so on. So basically, we all see the value of ethics, ethical conduct, instrument, instrumentality um, that is uh, independent of the goals that you're trying to pursue. Um, but why have these goals? Why have any goals? What to live for? Right? That's the, that's the question of ethics that ultimately all of these endeavors come down to. So you could be part of a Nazi army and you could be really good at what you do, but what is the, what is, you know, is that, is that a, a satisfying answer to the question of what is life? Um, now, secular systems with no reference to God or any ultimate reality cannot have a true good. Now, by the way, when I, I use the word God and ultimate reality, um, sometimes when people say you don't need God and it's there's sometimes a confusion about what you mean by God, because the Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, have an idea of a personal God with attributes. God who knows, cares, sends revelation, likes some things, dislikes other things. But there are Eastern religions that, in fact, have an idea that is very similar to God, but that God does not have attributes. But nevertheless, they have an idea of ultimate reality. And that's what philosophers use the word ultimism sometimes. Instead of theism, Ultimism is a more broader category because there is an idea of an ultimate reality. The dispute there is, if you will, in the in the in the language of Muslim uh, Muslim uh, usul, it's the differences on the question of sifat. They all agree on the existence of an ultimate reality, but if the sifa of personality exists, then that's God. But if that sifa is does not exist, then that's you know. Uh, ultimate reality, God is seen as some kind of a force or energy or some kind of uh, existence. Um, For Muslims, the idea is certainly that centrality of God. Now, secular systems uh, may, uh, they don't, they would consider these two things ultimately functionally the same. It could be an ultimate reality, but so long as that ultimate reality has a a moral uh, limitation, a moral command, then uh, secularism will see that as a religion and beyond the purview of public public ethics, public knowledge. So uh, in that sense, um, you know, when people say that, look, you could believe in 
I don't know, uh, you don't have one God, but you you believe in um, incarnation or something, then, well, you could disagree about the description of that religion um, and, and the description of God in that religion, but that is still an idea of an ultimate reality that secularism sets aside and sees as uh, subject to this kind of limitation of religion from the public sphere. Um, I was wondering if we could go back, uh, uh, Dr. Reimer, because because I I really do like the you know this distinction that you're drawing between instrumental ethics and true uh, true ethics, um, you know, because when you speak to a lot of atheists and you you and you ask them, look, look, how do you know, you know, all these, you know, so and so, such and such a thing is evil, such and such a thing is good, and a, a typical response that they will give you is that, look, all of us have a self interest to be safe, to be happy, uh, to live comfortably, and therefore there is, if we treat everyone the way we want to be treated, follow the golden rule, then it's in everyone's best collective interest. And But here, he's that person is using what you have called here an instrumental ethics line of reasoning, or what is also known in the, lit in the literature as prudential ethics, meaning it's not, you're not actually talking about morality now. Rather, you're talking about what is prudent in order for a certain goal to actualize. So you, as a human being, want to feel safe. You want stability. You want, com you want comfort. And you've come to the realization that in order for me to achieve that, I need to respect certain boundaries when it comes to how I treat other people so that they could reciprocate and also treat me the same way. But philosophers have clearly, you know, highlighted that this these are what we call prudential values, meaning you are finding it necessary or prudent to be kind to others so that they are kind to you. But that does that says nothing about the moral content of those actions. It, it does not say anything about whether it is moral or immoral that you treat that person that way. All you're talking about here is whether you're you have a self-interest, you want to actualize it, and you're talking about what is necessary to do in order to achieve that goal. Another example that they give is like, you know, photosynthesis. Yes, it is prudent that there is sunlight and soil and water for plants to grow, but that says nothing about whether it is moral or immoral to let plants grow or die. Similarly, you know, when you're talking, taking the instrumental ethical line of reasoning here, you're not really, in fact, at its core essence, truly talking about morality, truly talking about ethics. So I really like the distinction that you're drawing here between instrumental ethics and actual true ethics, because the, the, the former does not really touch upon the, the, moral, the actual moral content of, of, uh, you know, of, of all these uh, actions that we're trying to justify why we're doing. But in reality, they're just, it's just backed by pragmatic reasoning to serve something, self, all of our self-interest, which is that we want stability and, and safety. And therefore, right. I'm going to be good to others so that they reciprocate and be good to me. But that really isn't a grounding for morality, per se. And I think it's a really important point that, that you've yeah. highlighted here. Yeah. yeah. And this is very relevant. It sounds, sounds philosophical, but as we will see, it's actually quite... Uh, close to home in our day-to-day -day life of how we feel about the world. Um, 
you know, if you, there are people who are driven by the, the instrumental desire to maximize good. But then there are always people who are driven by something deeper because they want really truly what is good. And when these people choose atheism, often they choose atheism because they believe it has some ethical value because religions have failed because of whatever propaganda or misunderstanding when they fall into that. Often a lot of people have, you know, atheistic people or people who have this kind of questions about God. Well, they actually have sometimes good intention, ethical reasons, but then, then they end up with something uh, that uh, leads them really just uh, uh, cold and alone in the world, as as one scientist or one philosopher said, that you basically are this accident on a speck of dust in this um in this um in this universe what is the value of your life um and if you are just an accident on in in this in this cold and indifferent universe then um what you do and the good that you do the the, the person you know whether you help that old woman cross the street or whether you give water to that cat or not those are really meaningless um and if if you know completely meaningless things right you don't you don't have any personal feeling of doing something valuable worthy when you have constructed the world that way so ultimately you um do turn to myth for some kind of mythology some kind of idol for that uh to 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 fill that gap to that coldness um there is, in fact, uh, an, an, an article I wrote a little while ago uh, that's up on the internet somewhere where I say it's a, uh, it's a God's caliphs or straw dogs. Those are the two images of human beings. Uh, if you go with this idea of human beings as just a, an accident on a speck of dust with no God and no morality and no, no moral God, then uh, we are like straw dogs where there's, there's no purpose to life and no reason to feel important or special or connected. Um, on the other hand, we have this, uh, the alternative story is the story that we are um, stewards of God given this responsibility by God and the honor that comes and the responsibility that comes um, as a result of that. And if you go with this perspective, then it's very plausible to say that even what human beings uh, see as their great distinctive uh, quality of reasoning and intellect itself is not only meaningless, but in fact, it is a, a destruction or a negative uh, evolutionary trait. So American biologist Ernest Meyer, for example, argued, and many others follow that, is that um, intelligence is an evolutionary mistake, okay? Why is intelligence an evolutionary mistake? Because uh, if, if the only thing, only goal that you can identify is survival in an evolutionary perspective, then ferns who have no intelligence they're really good at reproducing, are the most successful species. Bugs, 
bacteria, whereas the more intelligent uh, you become in the animal kingdom, the, the more likely you are to become extinct. And human beings are not becoming extinct themselves only, but they in fact are causing a death of, uh, of a large number of other species as well. So in that sense, it makes sense to say that very intelligence that we are using to reflect on the question of ethics, on the question of, uh, of science and the world around us and the question of God, the very capacity is a mistake. That very capacity makes no sense. Um, so to me, ultimately, humanity has these two choices, to accept the role of God's stewards on earth, God's servants who have this purpose, um, who come from God, come go back to God, uh, who is Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, most merciful, always merciful, or straw dogs who have um, no purpose. And the more they think about it, the more they are likely to become depressed and 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 um, and, and find this life unbearable. And that's what happened to Nietzsche. And I think that that's because he understood the terms. Um, so, as I mentioned earlier, um, how does secular ethics operate? It operates by smuggling religious values. And for those who are looking for this argument in a more elaborate form, uh, Stephen Smith, a philosopher, I believe an American a lawyer, uh, has a book called uh, The Disenchantment of the Secular, uh, where he argues that, you know, if you look at questions such as uh, human rights, um, and and the way that these norms are uh, upheld, they have really no foundation, but they are smuggled in without due credit from religious traditions. Um, and this argument, uh, and I, I mentioned that argument about human rights already, that, you know, we talk about human rights as sort of a refrain against religion, a way to say, well, this is where religions are failing, but the very idea of human beings has no solid intellectual foundation. Um, so the, uh, similarly, the idea of that all men are created equal, there should be equality, where well, there is no proof for that. There is no scientific proof. There is no rational proof that all human beings are equal in any way, right? They have different capacities, different capacity to, to do good. They have different mental capacities. They have different spiritual capacities. They come in different strengths. What makes all human beings special? You know, every leftist uh, activist will repeat this endlessly, but it's not clear to them that they are simply repeating a religious mantra that has no foundation, no rational foundation. What you are using to bash religion and tradition and idea of, of God and authority is simply... Um, a product of and a gift of religion of, of, of revelation from God. Um, a, a, an experiment, a thought experiment that I often do with my uh, with my students to make the point that uh, that really I have elaborated on earlier um, um, as Nietzsche's uh, realization is: imagine that you have a, a mad scientist or mad for us. Uh, a scientist, a brilliant scientist, who is 
traveled to Mars with his small staff and wants to start new life, better life there, um, is thoroughly um, disenchanted with human beings, sees them as destroyers of the planet, superstitious and useless and self-destructive, has fitted the Earth with nuclear weapons that will destroy it uh, with the press of a button, and you, the um, uh, the assistant, are now have one chance to argue with this scientist why he should not do so, why he should not eliminate life on Earth. Um, what would you use as your reason? Why should human beings? You say, well, human beings are important, human beings are special. He would say, no, they're no more special than cockroaches. Do you have any problem eliminating cockroaches, a cockroach population in your kitchen? In fact, you can't wait to do that. How are human beings any different? Just because they can eat, just because they can um, you know, um, uh, reproduce. Um, and so ultimately, you know, you might give uh uh, you know, any reason that you will give that has to do with what human beings have done, well, it could be done better by him and his staff. And um, and that doesn't justify all the crimes that human beings have done. So what is what would you say? Um, something to think about. I mean, if you want to uh, jump in, Basam, and add something, please do so. It's oh, uh, No, I mean, it's, it's a very good thought experiment. I mean, I mean at the end of the day, when, you, when you're seeing... Uh, you know, uh, vegans, um, you know, they raise this question, you know, the, the, they try to answer this question in a way by, you know, when, why, why do we, why, why are vegans against, you know, eating animals? And they would accuse us meat eaters uh, of speciesism and, and, you know, similar to racism, but, you know, discriminating against species. On what basis are you discriminating uh, right. against the animal species? Right. And uh, and and for them, they'll try to root. They'll try to root. Uh, you know, their, their determinant factor here would be sentience. So as long as the entity uh, in question could experience harm, it would then become immoral to inflict harm uh, on that entity. Now, at the end of the day, the, the bulk of human beings are just not uh, persuaded by this argument. And, you know, keeping aside how how holes could be poked. Um, in this, uh, you know, vegan argument, I don't want to digress too much. Um, you know, here, let's say then human beings will then try to justify their superiority by saying, okay, well, we have intellect, um, we have rationality, but just as you just pointed out, um, you know, if these species, you know, the, these Martians if their intellect is at a much greater capacity to the point where they would view us as we would view animals, well, then again, the argument is lost. And so it just becomes subjective, uh, you know, uh, ultimately uh, uh, at a certain point, if you're probed, if you're probed enough. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, I like these sorts of thought experiments because uh, they induce very thoughtful self-reflection on these issues. Yeah, and, and this works really well when you have a room full of people who, in fact, try to give answers. And I think that is it's really fun because ultimately people always realize that 
without an extra external answer, an answer of somebody who has uh, made human beings distinct and given them something sacred, something special, um, breathed something sacred into them and made killing them wrong, um, and somebody who will hold you accountable for that, um, it isn't possible to argue uh, that human beings should not be eliminated altogether. And of course, there are people, environmentalists, who go you know, a little far in this, in their understanding of human destruction of the planet, who actually argue that killing a lot of people might be a good idea. Um, so, and they, and they do so with the greatest ethical concern, right? That's the irony of it. And that's, that goes to the point I made earlier that some of the, uh, the greatest uh, acts of uh, what human beings see as greatest acts of evil are committed with a strong ethical uh, ethical impulse driven by strong ethical ideas. So um, now we have argued that liberal ethics do not have roots, such as you know the idea of human rights, the idea we haven't looked at the idea of freedom and others yet, but it's enough for us to stick to that one example for now that they are rootless or sometimes what I call this levitating ethics. This ethics is levitating in the air, has no roots, has no stability. Anybody can take it and make anything else, anything out of it. And what this often means is that uh, those in power uh, are able to use that ethics to their justification. Um, and it's, uh, it's basis in the base of this, smuggling act. Um, but it's also liberalism today is the most successful sect of secularism. Why that is so, I have a theory, but that will lead us to an analysis of capitalism and liberalism, which we will not do so here. Um, but sometimes I want to say that people confuse the idea of liberalism with today's leftist progressivism. Uh, that's not what I mean by liberalism. That's not what philosophers typically mean by liberalism. That's simply one of the sects, one of the manifestations of liberalism. But uh, right ideologies often are also informed by liberal ethics. Not all of them. I mean, you could have extreme nationalism or other fascism that are not liberal. But there are, uh, you know, uh, mainstream American um, ideologies are all liberal. Uh, classical liberalism, classical individualism, libertarianism, they're all informed by some understanding of liberalism. So um, I would say that um, th these three premises of individual autonomy, the no harm principle, and the idea that public reason should be secular rather than grounded in anyone's particular beliefs, any one religion, those are the three things, uh, three premises that make liberalism uh, claim to have this universal uh, applicability and um, this uh, this tolerant um, presentation that individuals, not community individuals, have auto maximum autonomy so long as they don't harm others. And uh, the reasons that people use in order to negotiate their uh, rights um, uh, is has to be secular, has to be decided between people. Now, uh, I won't launch into a full critique of liberalism. There is so much of it that is out there. Um, 
But liberalism has become ethics to end all ethics. Um, this is how I will summarize the position of uh, uh, Alistair McIntyre, whose critique of liberalism called After Virtue, I think is one of the most interesting ones. And not Ma the only McIntyre was a philosopher? Or... Um, yes. So Alistair McIntyre is a uh, philosopher, a 20th century British philosopher who uh, then later moved to America and I believe is uh, still alive at Notre Dame, very old, uh, probably in his 90s. Um, uh, he started off as a Marxist and then later become an Aristotelian and then a Thomist Aristotelian and a Catholic Christian, mm. um, whose critique applies to a broad, this broad post-Enlightenment Western thought generally. And um, what he argues is that today in the modern West, no moral argument can be resolved. And this is not because people aren't good philosophers. It's not because people aren't teaching enough philosophy in school. This is not because people do not uh, are not interested in ethics anymore. Not at all. In fact, um, it's because the foundations, the rational foundations that are necessary for any disagreement to be resolved have disappeared from the West uh, in the way that modern Westerners, starting with uh, Enlightenment philosophers, have constructed the idea of rationality and individualism and of liberalism. And so we witness this, um, you know, whatever debate there is, an abortion debate, for example, uh, people will try to bring utilitarian arguments, people will try to bring, uh, you know, the definition of life itself, you know, where does, when does life begin? Uh, the, people will try to begin the importance of uh, choice um, and, and so on. But all of these arguments, they are often grounded in um, either one or two things, either they're grounded in a philosophy that the other person, the other group does not identify with, there's no reason for anyone to, uh, to, for example, if it's a biblical argument, if you can prove biblically that, uh, you know, there is a soul and so on. Um, and that in that case, well, uh, liberals, including progressive Christians, liberal Christians have no reason. In fact, in principle, they keep that are out of public argument, uh, public debate. Uh, but then you might have somebody arguing in the name of choice, in the name of convenience um, and, and choice over body. Um, and again, other people have no reason to believe that uh, human, human beings own their bodies. And um, who, who owns the bodies of your family, your community, the state, the nation state? Uh, and in fact, in many ways, all of these different agencies claim ownership of your body uh, and pro provide protection of your body. So which one you're going to go with? There is no way to resolve this uh, debate. Uh, basically, every side is going to simply say this is ultimately they're saying this is my religion. This is my religion. There is no rationality possible. It's just that your interpretation. Um, 
So what ends up happening in real life is that people often go with one of two postures to resolve debates, not rationally, not ethically, not through argument, not through by pointing to agreed upon goals and principles or teleologies, but rather either inertia. So conservatives are likely to say, we've been doing this, it's worked for us, we we are the winners, look, we won this war, that war, Uh, we have this much wealth that uh, we have accumulated, we are at the top of the world. To continue doing that, make America great again, uh, you have to uh, you have to stick to what we were doing. Or you would say, no, in fact, we were horrible, we were terrible, we were racist, we committed genocide of Native Americans, we in, enslaved an entire people for so long, we were we have waged colonial wars, uh, we have been at war for hundreds of years um, against people that have not done nothing to us. So we are terrible, horrible people, the establishment, and that um we have to wage war against this establishment that has engaged in these absolutely horrible acts for so long so systematically and so the only thing we can have now the only way of uh, ascertaining any kind of ethics is by simply listening to the weak to the oppressed the deprived and and reciprocating their rights and perhaps compensating for their uh for some of the wrongs so basically, claims of who has been wronged, uh, and then sort of reciprocal logic to say that we could f- try to fix that. But um, this means that there is an endless uh, claim, and there is no basis for evaluating various claims of wrong. There is no way to creating a hierarchy of who is more wrong, who is less wrong, and who has done more. Uh, there is no way to evaluate how uh, sin and crime uh, uh, passes from generation to generation or from one class to another, one person to another. All of these ideas that uh, societies, um, you know, uh, de- determine based on an elaborate philosophical, um, sometimes religious systems, all of those things are gone and they're fundamentally hollowed out by liberalism, by the idea of individual autonomy um, and um, this idea, uh, again, similarly, in all of these debates, if you look at the basic tenets of liberalism, individual autonomy and no harm, um, and secular public reason, none of them actually give any guidance. Because let's go with the most famous principle, the important principle, central principle is do no harm. That you could do whatever, you know, you have complete autonomy to follow your desire, right? There is no desire that's wrong. So you could be whatever you could want to be. If a person who is born as a male wants to be a female, you have perfect desire, you have a desire, and that desire is serious. That desire needs to be fulfilled. And uh, liberal ethics uh, have no way to say that there is an order, a natural order that you you must subordinate your desire to. And so your desire is valid and legitimate. And so long as you're not doing anybody any harm, uh, you have not only the um, uh, you know you have the right and the privilege and to to um, uh, express that desire and then take another step and and help other people who are expressing their desires right um, now you could say that everything is now put in the principle of harm because 
how you define harm is a matter of how you define the human personality, how you define, uh, you know, uh, the the rights that we ought to have, that when they are uh, violated, then you have harm. And then you bring in all assumptions of, all the silent assumptions of a culture when you're defining harm. So one person say that you simply calling me by the wrong pronoun is a harm. And the other person will say, well, no, uh, me, in fact, condemning you, in fact, condemning you and your God and your prophet and your values, all of this is free speech and that is not harm. So ultimately, you have no way to uh, to decide but um, a but effectively power, because if you don't have reason, then all that's left is power. Um, so some people will use various forms of power that they have. And effectively, that becomes jungle law. And that's the end of rational ethics. That's the end of ethics. Um, so that's the kind of argument that Alistair McIntyre has made. And I believe that that's a, a fitting uh, description of modern culture. So I will end then with some final reflections on uh, how we can find an Islamic alternative out of the the malaise, uh, the ethical malaise, the ethical nihilism in which the modern world finds itself. Um, I elaborate on this idea in the second article I have, uh, which um, um, I expect you will link, inshallah, uh, in, in the description. Inshallah, absolutely. Um, I'll, link, I'll link to both articles. Okay. Prophetic ethics for those who aspire to God and eternity. Um, and this uh, title for me is something that I invest in a little bit, try to explain what that means. It comes from um, the Quranic phrase uh, that when um, that in the prophet of God, uh, there is uswa hasana, liman kana akhir, who hopes for God and the day of judgment and the final, and final life. Um, for them, it is there is an uswa, there is a role model in the life of the Prophet wasallam, and not only prophet by prophetic ethics the, in the Quran, um, what I'm trying to get at is not just the ethic or the conduct of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, but of all the prophets through whom the Prophet Muhammad himself is instructed. Philosophically, what that means is that um, where what is the foundation of ethics? Postmodern critique has leveled the field by showing the emptiness of enlightenment reasoning that was that claimed that by getting rid of religion and past and superstition uh, and bringing in reason and science, we're going to build life on an objective foundation that delusion has been destroyed by by modern life and postmodern philosophy represents that attack against this idea of reason with the capital r as as the objective uh you know as the objective standard as a new god so what has now uh, it has ended the possibility along with that has ended the possibility of ethics which used to be based in religion in the past um it and then it tried to ground this, it ground that in reason and science. 
that has gone and what is now left as Nietzsche saw it coming. We have drunk up the sea. We have wiped off the horizon. We have turned up and up to down, down to up. We have unchained the sun and we are left with, uh, that is uh, the global, global north or west, is left with no way to define right from wrong. I think ethics then either has no meaning and it has become clear as a result of this great civilizational dialectic that ethics either has no meaning or its meaning is a reflection of the creator in the created by an act of choice. And um, I don't provide uh, perhaps more, more would be needed to bring out this idea in, in a later presentation, but it is reflected in the prophetic hadith, God is beautiful and loves beauty, which is to say that the ethical ideas that we embrace are those that are the beautiful attributes of God that are reflected in uh, or to be reflected in God's creation. But the modality of this reflection, how to do so, how to reflect being God's creatures, being the creatures of the perfect, infinite, infinitely good, infinitely perfect being, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, um, this is this reflection is taken to a new level, a new height, when you go from being mere creation to a special kind of creation, one with will that chooses to submit as creation servants, which is a key word for human beings in the Quran, uh, ibad, right? From being passive reflection as all creation is to active reflection of divine attributes as only human beings are, as well as the unseen creation, the jinn, according to the Qur'an, Allah says in the Qur'an, I have not created men and jinn except so that they become uh, my servants as uh, they act, engage in ibadah. So, um, the Prophet Muhammad and the prophetic model, alayhi salam, uh, in the Qur'an is that movement from being a creation to being servants. Um, and that is the most uh, fundamental, I believe, uh, fundamental uh, ground for being ethical for what is good. And uh, how that is done in the Quran through the teachings uh, of the law, the Sharia, as well as akhlaq uh, of the form of the good in the way that things are done, in the way that the good goodness is internalized, um, that is uh, the subject matter of Islamic tradition of uh, akhlaq and tazkiyah, ethics and uh, spiritual purification and good conduct. So um, that's where I will uh, leave our discussion today and perhaps um, come back to it in a later discussion. To, to give more flesh to this skeleton. Well, Barakallahu Fikum for this uh, insightful and very critical presentation. I think, you know, when it comes to intellectual doubts pertaining to Islam, the domain of ethics is the one most troubling to many Muslims. And your presentation is extremely helpful in highlighting the correct paradigm 
paradigm and approach one ought to have about the subject. You know, thinking correctly about these matters helps bolster our own confidence in the teachings of our faith. So, you know, once again, Dr. Romer, for this very valuable and constructive presentation and question. Uh, before I let you go, I might I'm think of maybe just ask you maybe just a couple of questions. Um, now, clearly, you know, uh, despite receiving revelation, Muslims still don't agree about several issues pertaining to morality. So how would you answer, how would you respond to someone who would argue that religion hasn't really ended disagreement about these issues, about hasn't totally solved moral conflict? And so in light of that, hasn't really contributed anything substantially positive when it comes to human beings needing to figure out what their moral values are. How would you respond to that? Okay, so I'll be I'll be as quick as possible. First, the very idea of human being and the sanctity of human life, and therefore the reason for us to be ethical is a gift of uh, of revelation, right? So you wouldn't even be asking the question if you didn't have that idea. Um, but uh, secondly, disagreement, ethical disagreement is part of our ethical existence. If God did not give us choice, you couldn't be ethical. And if God did not, did not give us reason, um, you wouldn't have that any mechanism, any way to sort of exercise that choice. Um, so ethical disagreement is part of the package part of the test that um uh, that is given us if we did not have ethical disagreements that meant we did not have independent and free reason and that would mean we did not have we would be like animals uh we would not have that ability to look for god look for what is good and um so it's an ultimately an act of divine will and divine wisdom that God has given us uh, an element of free choice and um, and the wisdom and, and intellect to go after it. And this, this dealing with that disagreement is not always a bad thing. In fact, it's necessary element. It's, it's necessary to, for us to grow ethically, intellectually, is by disagreeing and then dealing with that disagreement in an ethical way. Uh, Allah describes in the Quran one of the one of the most frequent ways in which uh, people of revelation, people who were given the truth, the way the way they failed is by disagreeing with each other through transgression, because they failed to engage in the disagreement uh, in a proper way, and they transgressed and became wicked. And um, but but having that disagreement. The possibility of that disagreement uh, is part of the test, and it's a part of our ethical growth. I wouldn't want to you know, imagine if you lived in a world where you only had, you know, you had right and wrong. You could never disagree, and the only test you had was the test of the will, whether you did it or not. Um, 
you wouldn't have any reason to develop imagination. You would not have any reason to ask questions of what is right. You would not have any reason to come to the conclusion that worshiping God is the right thing, that I, I love God because it is the right thing. You would only do so because it's commanded and you had no other choice. So in a sense, our life is so much more um, you know, so much more meaningful and our our worship of God for which we are created is so much more multidimensional because we have the choice to create, uh, to think about ethics and create disagreement in many respects and then uh, go back to God using with that choice. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and again, and, 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 you know, one would, you know, uh, we should also point out that, you know, the nature or the scope of disagreement varies greatly compared to if you have okay Muslim believers disagreeing about certain issues, but within a certain framework, compared to if human beings were had absolutely no recourse to an objective moral standard, and then trying to agree on several issues. Well, it's very clear that without an objective standard through refer back to, fall back on, the nature and scope of the disagreements are going to be much more vast than those operating within, you know, a more narrow framework. So the disagreements between Muslims cannot be compared to, you know, Muslims and non <laughs> between Muslims and non-Muslims who are operating with with different uh, with different uh, frameworks. But you know, uh, uh, as you said you know, the ability to disagree in and of itself, um, you know, cultivates us in a, in a moral sense because it's forcing yeah. you to, to tolerate others, to listen to others, to be kind to others, to seek to understand the perspective of others. And so with disagreement comes uh, moral growth as well. Um, I'm, you know, I've heard several people say, and I think, you know, one of the was popular atheist uh, Sam Harris. Sam Harris. He would say something like, "You know, we've we've come to learn through experience what harms and benefits us human beings, and there is almost universal agreement on several things, either being good or bad through experience, despite there being different religions. You know, us human beings, we've come to learn that certain things." are good and bad, right? So harm, inflicting harm on others, uh, torturing people gratuitously, um, you know, uh, cheating people, uh, lying to people, and, and so on. And we've come to know this through experience. So they would ask, why do we not just rely on our experience to know what is good and bad while respecting any differences of opinion that might arise, just as you Muslims respect differences of opinion, you know, among yourselves, um, you know, isn't experience, uh, you know, uh, may not be a flawless uh, tool, but you know, might be good enough. Might be good enough. Um, yeah. So the question is, uh, this assumption that human beings have agreed is um i mean not empirically observable in my view uh it's always um 
you you could always see that you, you know it, it is the certain virtues are always articulated in certain specific contexts like certain within certain communities uh, but even those virtues are different in different circumstances um so it's hard to say that there is a, uh, a there is an agreement on a whole lot the, i yeah. think that i would grant that there is a there's an agreement on um certain fundamentals but it always requires extra work to clarify and uh quantify why is tr- being truthful good for instance why is being good to those who have done good to you is good i mean it's it's very uh commonsensical thing but almost every community puts limits on these things um and so the question always becomes how are you going to um where how are you going to qualify where are you, where the qualification is going to come from um earlier in the presentation i talked about two ways in which we could respond to this um most immediately one is that some of the best thinkers have come up with some uh, most horrible horrifying ideas um and so clearly not everybody agrees that parents should love their children and children have should be uh, raised by loving parents you know plato didn't um secondly as i also showed that ethical ideas in real life often lead to some of the most horrible crimes um that have perpetrated against humanity um so another way to put that is that there is a hierarchy of ideas hierarchy of goods like we don't we never have one good but there's always a hierarchy of competing goods and the you cannot resolve that hierarchy of those competing goods without a standard without a goal without a meaning that you're trying to um ultimately uh achieve so for example forgiveness is forgiveness good or bad um well you may forgive the powerful person every time they make an error because um that's good but it could also be the most horrible thing because you're letting powerful people get away um you know similarly equality versus freedom which one is good um you had a cold war where the US and the USSR or, or you know basically ran the world killing people around the world based on the ideology of whether freedom was more important a value or equality uh, of econ- economic inequality so people on everybody would seem to agree in the west in sam harris's circles both are good but you could literally have war around the world on which one was better yeah absolutely yeah no i fully agree i mean uh it seems to me that a lot of people that make this claim that you know all oh, a lot of us agree on certain fundamentals it, it seems like probably the most basic examples that you could count on your fingers but there's still a whole huge array you know i i, I mean uh, they're probably they're all probably only talking about a few examples you know okay so you don't murder anyone for for no reason right and probably just a few other examples okay a lot of us agree on that but there's so much more when it comes to the ethical domain and sphere to to talk about and to to hash to hash on to, to tease out and so it seems like they are trying to you know blow out of proportion just how much we 
we human beings do agree with each other. So, you know, I do agree with so you. So let me, I guess the question, one thing that um, often comes to mind, you know, when you, when you open like a basic book on uh, ethics, for example, being truthful is good, right? For Kant, mm. it's a fundamental duty. There's no, there's no exception, so on and so forth. Now, let's say you're hiding, you know, a famous example, you're hiding innocent people who are being hunted down by yeah. an evil regime. Uh, do you tell the truth that you're hiding them or do you lie? Yeah. Uh, and why do you, why would you lie? Is the lie, you know, you, you would lie because you, you have a higher value, which is to save the lives of certain people, of, of, of innocent people. Um, yeah, and is lying in that circumstance still evil, but a lesser evil, or is it good? <laughs> so is like, it good? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you can, that. that's why... Um, I think that um, the, the that's why I use the word in my presentation, or at least in my, in my thinking I do, which is ethical impulse. There is no doubt that there is the ethical impulse. And it is that same impulse that uh, why the vast majority of human beings will say that Sam Harris's denial of God is one of the greatest sins. Allah, before we close, any, any final words, Dr. Weimer? Well, yeah, um, I think that uh, it's a it's a it's a beautiful thing. I mean, human beings' most powerful thing is that we want to be good, and Allah has put that capacity in us so that we uh, we look for and turn to and appreciate and worship the ultimate good that is God, and that and reflect that good and His attributes uh, in a way that is fitting. Um, toward each other, toward all of the creation. Um, and it's important for us to engage in ethical inquiry um, to, uh, to ensure that we don't fall into the characteristic ailments or afflictions um, of, of people, even those people who have access to the truth, the final revelation. Um, so I think that... Um, um, Ethics often could be the ground where a lot of other people who are searching for the truth will find a way in to the truth of Islam, right? And um, I will end with the with a reflection on the hadith that part of it I just recited, which is khiyaruhum fil jahiliya, khiyaruhum fil Islam, the best of them in jahiliya, that is outside of Islam, are best in Islam so long as they acquired understanding. And then the Prophet that in that hadith in Al-Bukhari goes on to say, والسلام, that you will find that the best of them are those who hated this matter, who hated Islam most. Hmm. Whereas you'll find that the worst of them are those who always equivocated. They weren't sure because they were just looking. In other words, they were not interested in what is really good. Yeah. So when they thought Islam was bad, they hated it. But as soon as, and these people are the best of them because as soon as they realize it's good, they'll be the first one to come and defend. They will be the khiyaruhum. They will be the best of them. It's clear they were, they, they were principled even when they were wrong. Right. Right. And th this also means that people who hate on Islam, we should look at them not, not as the worst always, but potentially they have, if they're doing so, not for, you know, some other reason, but because they're really... Uh, they really believe that it is an evil, then they are 
likely to be the best of them uh, and, and, and embrace Islam, embrace the truth. Uh, but also those who always hedged, you know, those who are always sitting on the fence to see which one wins. The Prophet ﷺ says they are the worst of them because they remain, they, they don't have to change much. They remain munafiq, they remain hypocritical, they remain half, uh, you know, uh, um, um, sort of this, this this half commitment. And I think that this um, this is just a way to say that, you know, people who disagree uh, with uh, with Muslims and engage in this debate, we shouldn't, um, you know, we shouldn't go in thinking that well, this this is the worst, and I'm here to just hurt and yeah. uh, and and put down this person, because the Prophet ﷺ has given us a way. If it is the truth and caring about the truth, which is an ethical right impulse, and I believe that that's an admirable ethical impulse that we should appreciate. Alhamdulillah Rabbil for that uh you know reminder and uh I think it's a good way uh to to, to end uh to end this session. And once again, uh Dr. Oyama for your presentation today. And inshallah we hope to have you again. And I'm gonna part you and our listeners with the Islamic greetings of Salaamu Alaikum Rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the King of Sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc